there was one line in that video which especially kind of stuck with me, and it's when uh, the one of the newscasters is reading or translating one of the things that was said, and he says, uh, it's a letter written in blood to the nation of the cross. And I had just kind of this series of thoughts upon hearing that and thinking about it. And the first one was, I, I was amazed at how theologically accurate it was. That uh, these people who hate the gospel and hate Christians and hate Jesus and hate our God's God understands that he has made us a kingdom of people. Now that may not have been their intent. They may have been talking about America. They may have been talking about another specific, you know, uh, geopolitical nation. But we are a kingdom of people as followers of Jesus. And so when our brothers and sisters are killed or persecuted over there, it should affect us here. It should stir us up. It should motivate us. Uh, and that kind of led into the, the second thought that I just don't really think it's going to have the effect that they think it's going to. Right? The purpose of terror is to cause us to be afraid. And I think that what will probably happen is it will be on the news and it will be on Facebook for a while and then it won't be. And then we'll forget about it. We'll go back to our lives. We'll do our thing. We'll get busy with what we get busy with. And then the next thing will come along that will captivate our attention and stir us up. Uh, and that led to the, the kind of third thought and that it's I hope that it does affect us. I don't, I don't want it to fill us with terror because then they win. I want it to fill us with hope and boldness and courage in the face of fear. Because we know that our God is stronger. We know that the gospel is more powerful than anything that anyone can throw at us. This week, uh, Shannon and I talked to this, this guy, Dinesh, who we're supporting in India. And uh, there's all kinds of persecution going on there. And most of the stuff in his village, no one ever hears about because none of the news outlets go there. But there are pastors and church members being beaten in his city. There's churches that are getting attacked. Uh, and Shannon asked him at one point in the conversation, he said, are you afraid for your life and your family? And I thought, I've, I think that's the first time I've been part of a conversation where someone has asked that, right? I've never talked to any of our church members and said, like, are you guys afraid for your lives? Because we live in freedom, which is great, and luxury, which lulls us to sleep. And so, like, all this is kind of going on in the background as I approach our passage this week. And I think that it really goes well with uh, these ideas in that the main point of our passage this morning is that God demands all of our affection and all of our allegiance. And so if you would, open up your Bibles to James chapter 4 this morning. And we'll read the passage together and then I'll talk about how those ideas come out of this passage. Again, that's James chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, 
that your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word that You inspired James to write to these people. You empowered him with your Holy Spirit to communicate the message to them that you had for them. And we thank you that you empower us with that same Holy Spirit. That if we're believers, he lives in us. And he works among us. So we pray this morning that you would help us, Holy Spirit, to understand this word this morning. That you wouldn't allow it to fall on deaf ears or hard hearts, but that you would change us. That you would make us more into the image of a follower of Jesus than we were when we walked in here. That we wouldn't continue in our double-mindedness. that we would give all that we are to you and to what you call us to. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. One of my many, many pet peeves is when people read the Bible and they just read it like it's a normal book. And in the sense of like, now I feel like my community group is going to be freaked out around me. But whenever someone reads in community group and they're just like, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this? And they just, just read it. And the reason why is because, right, in, it's, it's a fairly recent development in the history of the Bible that we all have copies of it and we all sit it alone in a room or in our homes and read through it. It's a fairly recent thing in the history of Scripture. Originally, these letters were written to churches to be delivered and read out loud. And so James wrote this letter. It was sent to a group of people, and someone would read it. And they didn't have a Xerox machine that they could make copies of and just send it home with people. And so if they wanted to hear the word, they had to go to the church to hear the word. Some wealthy families would have maybe one or two scrolls that they could read together. But even then, it was the family that gathered around the Word together to hear it. 
Like one guy didn't just take it into a room and read it by himself. It was this, this public thing. And so when people read the word, they read it so that people understood the message. And I think that when we read scripture alone, at home, on our own, or in a group, we need to remember that that's how it was written. And so like when we come to something like a question at the beginning of verse 1, it should cause us to sit under that question. right? When this guy, whoever he was, read this letter to the church the first time, he said, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then I think he waited. He let people think about that. What, what does cause quarrels and fights among us? And I think that we too often just blow through those things and don't really think about the answers to the questions that Scripture is asking us. So I think we could personalize this a little more to make it hit home. What, what causes disagreements with your spouse? What causes conflict in the dorm or on the team? What causes disputes with your roommates? And I think that if we're honest, when we think about the answer to those questions, I know when I think of what causes fights in my home, what causes me to be frustrated with my children, the answer is always something like this. Right? They did this. It bothered me. I get in fights with my spouse because even though my spouse is wonderful, she does things that irritate me. I get, you know, you get in fights with people at work because the people at work are lazy. Your disagreements happen in the dorm room because those guys down the hall are weird. And they smell funny. They don't ever clean their room. That was me in college, by the way. Our answer is always outward. And I think we know, and if you've been around BC long enough, you hopefully know that that's not the answer that the gospel or the Bible or we as Christians should give. It's not out there that the problem is. The problem is in here. And there's this story, which I think I've shared before, but this uh, London newspaper was asking all these great thinkers and teachers and scholars and philosophers and just these, you know, titans of their fields, what is the greatest problem with the world? And they were asking them to all write letters in so they could print them in the newspaper and just show these are what people say are the greatest problems with the world. And one of those guys was a guy named G.K. Chesterton, who's a, you know, just a great English thinker. And his letter said this, which I think we have on a slide. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton, which I really love the sincerely yours after just that two-word response. That's his answer. What's the biggest problem with the world? It's me. And I think he's a little bit just kind of messing with them, but he's also showing what his theology believes, and that's that the problem with the world isn't the world. It's sinful people in the world. Right? God created the world and it was good, and then we jacked it up, and we continue to jack it up. It's us and our sin, that's the problem. So when we answer questions like, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Our first answer as a Christian should be, I do. What causes fights in my marriage? Me. What causes disagreements with my children? My sin. We should be the first one through the door to say, the problem is me. 
And I'm not talking about self-deprecation. I'm not talking about like, yeah, I'm a bad person. I'm a sinner. I'm talking about honestly owning up to the fact that we are broken and we are in need of redemption and restoration and that we're not finished yet. And so when bad things happen, we should suspect ourselves first. This is what James says, right? He throws out this question and then he asks another one, which really isn't a question. He says, is it not, meaning this is what it is, that your passions are at war within you? And he explains, you desire, you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. These files, these fights and quarrels are caused by these misplaced passions in people. And so, at first glance this week, I approached this passage thinking this is all about fights and quarrels. And so my sermon needs to be all about fights and quarrels. And I was thinking, man, James has just had me on the ropes through the last couple weeks. Right? He's talking about our tongue and how we use it. And so I spent that week just thinking, man, I am a horrible person when I talk out loud. And then he talks about wisdom from above versus false wisdom. And I thought, man, I, I am not wise in understanding. I thought I was. And so he's just, and then quarrels and fights this whole week as just life happens. And then I got to verse 4. And I realized that our tongue is important and how we use it is important. And having wisdom from above is important. And we should pursue that. And we should avoid fights and quarrels. And I'd love to talk to you more about that issue because I spent a whole lot of time thinking about it this week. But that's not what James is after. How we use the tongue, whether our wisdom is, is pure or not, and whether or not we fight and quarrel is not his biggest concern. His biggest concern is that we are giving God the allegiance and the affection that he demands from us because of who he is. And that's why he makes this huge turn in this passage. He's talking about fights and quarrels, and then in verse 4, he just loses it. And he says what I think he's been wanting to say all along. He says, you adulterous people. And remember... He wrote this to a specific group of people to be read out loud to them. This isn't him just kind of throwing it out there on Facebook and seeing who responds. He's got people in his mind that he is calling names. He is saying the way that you are living, the way that your church is acting is in a way that shows that you are not faithful to God. You're cheating on him with your own desires, your own passion, your own split allegiances to other things. And because of who he is, he demands all of it from us. And so any amount that we're holding back from him means that we are guilty of adultery. He fleshes this out. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And here it's really important. We need to know what this isn't saying because a lot of Christians are isolationists, right? They'll say their passages that say like, don't don't love the world. Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. So we should be really, really far away from the world. We should be outside of it. We should have our own Christian community, all of our own Christian things, and just stay away from the world and anything that looks like the world. But that's not what James is saying. 
First of all, we need to recognize that their understanding of friendship is completely different than ours. According to uh, recordsetter.com, the person with the most Facebook friends is uh, someone, all of you professional wrestling fans, which I'm assuming that's everybody in here, might know by the name of Goldberg. Uh, As of the last count, he had 6,223 Facebook friends, which makes him wildly popular. If you were to travel back in time in like a phone booth, and I don't mean Doctor Who, I mean Bill and Ted, and talked to James and said, hey, there's this guy I know that has 6,223 friends. James's head would explode. Because for them, friendship was an emotional and physical and spiritual harmony that they enjoyed together. They spent time with one another all the time. They thought the same things. They had everything in common. They were probably closer than siblings today as friends. So if you had a friend, you would do absolutely anything for them. You pattern your life after them, they pattern their life after you. Friendship was hugely significant in the ancient world. And so when he's saying, you know, friendship with the world is enmity with God, he doesn't mean this kind of casual acquaintance that we would describe as friendship today. I know there's close friends and not so close friends. So it's not saying we need to separate from the world. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. That's how Jesus talked about it. So he's not saying pull off from the world, but he is saying that friendship with the world, this kind of doing what they do, being like them, living like they live, talking like they talk, doing what they do, that is opposition to God. And he used the word enmity. Enmity is an old-fashioned word that we don't use. But what it is, is this enduring hostility that only ends when one side wins. Right? I mean, that's something that we should be very familiar with with the recent news stories. Right? The, like a radical uh, Muslim would hold enmity toward other people. They're not going to give up. They're not going to let it go. It's not going to be able to be, uh, you know, worked away with peace as much as we, we might want it to. Enmity only ends when one side wins. And that usually means the other side is defeated or dead. And so we can't do both. We can't be friends with the world in this sense and someone who wants to follow God because God is in opposition to that. And that cannot be maintained by us with him. It only ends when we give up. Just in case we missed that, he said, whoever wishes, whoever desires, whoever wants to align themselves with the world makes himself an enemy of God. He explains why from the word. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. There's a lot of debate over what it means by the spirit. Is he talking about just the fact that he gave us life at creation? Or is he talking about believers who have trusted in Christ and have received the deposit of the Holy Spirit? Honestly, I think he's talking about both. 
He's being intentionally ambiguous to communicate a bigger point to us. And that's the reality that we've been bought twice. Right? God made us. He owns us. He owns all of creation. We are His. That right there should be enough for us to say, I'm going to do what you want. I'm going to live the way you want me to live. I'm going to spend my money the way you want me to spend my money. I'm going to spend my time the way you want me to spend my time because I recognize all of it is yours. But we know that it's not enough. We sin, we rebel, we do what we want. So God sends his son into the world to redeem us, to save us. The word says he purchased us with his own blood. That's the second time we've been bought by God. The first time because he made us, the second time because he remade us by dying for us. And so after all that, we're owned twice, and we still say, I want to do what I want. I don't want to do what you want me to do. I don't want to live how you want me to live. We rebel, we sin, we fall short. And I'm not saying that we can be perfectionists. James isn't saying that we can be perfectionists. What he's saying is that we should, because of who we are, give God the allegiance that he deserves from us. And when we don't, he yearns jealously over us. Because he knows more than we do that we are his. He knows more than we do that he deserves our allegiance and our affection. And we should feel that weight. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we don't give it to him. None of us are perfectly allegiant to God all the time. None of us show him the affection that he deserves from us all the time. That's why I love what James says in verse 6. But he gives more grace. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us because we don't give him what he deserves, but he gives more grace. Grace is undeserved favor, right? We don't give him the allegiance that he deserves, so he gives us more of what we don't deserve. God's grace is more than abundant to cover all of our sin. We fail to be aligned to him. We fail to give him what he deserves from us, and so he gives us more of what we don't deserve. That's amazing. Right? That's, that's good news. The bad news is we don't give him what he deserves, so he should kill us, and destroy us, and, I don't know, return us to the store that he bought us at twice. Which is nothingness. But instead of doing that, he throws more at us. He gives us more grace. But he gives it in a specific way. And this is one of the things I love about James, because James is... 
He's bold and he's specific and he's blunt and he's direct and he's, you know, we should feel like he's hammering us with what's required of us. And then he gives us just a little bit of grace and then kind of starts back in. Right? This would be like the boxer having the guy on the ropes and just waiting for a second until they make eye contact and then just laying him out. He gives grace, amazing grace, abundant grace. Therefore, it says, this is the way in which he gives grace, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He does give more grace, but he gives it to those that are humble, to those that have humility, those that are meek. And he's going to spend the rest of this passage explaining what that looks like. These are the recipients of grace. If you're prideful, if you're arrogant, you're outside of that. You're not getting that more grace. And he's got these kind of bookends on the passage. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And everything in between is just kind of explaining this idea of what it looks like to come before the Lord with humility to receive his grace. Not to earn it, because we can't earn it, but because that's who he bestows it upon. So he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. He's got these two statements. Command with a promise. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a promise. Right? If we stand firm against the devil, and this word here, resist, it's, it's both active and passive. It's like withstand, kind of like a house would withstand a storm. The storm comes, the storm blows against the house. The house stays there. But it's also a stand against. And so this is the way we respond to the enemy's work in us, in our church, in the world. We stand against it. We stand firm when he attacks us. But we also go out and fight against it. We actively resist it. So if, like, you know, you were talking to someone and there's a woman, she says, my husband is beating me. We don't say, resist the devil. Right? We go to her house and we resist the devil. We take the punch that's meant for her. We take a bat with us and give it to him. Not in the handed over kind of way. And I'm not advocating violence, obviously. We resist the devil, both passively from his attacks and actively when we need to. And God, through James, promises that he will flee from us. Right? No temptation has seized you but that which is common to man. And there will always be a way out. The devil does not and cannot overpower us. If we give in to temptation, it's because we want to. It's because we're not resisting the devil. The flip side of this is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is a command. Draw near to God. But it's a command with a huge promise. Right? If we draw near to him, he will draw near to us back. When Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain in the temple, which separated people from the presence of God in the temple, it's torn from top to bottom to represent the reality that because of his death on our behalf, we now have access to God. All the people who could not go into the presence of God can now go into the presence of God because he's covered us with his blood. 1 Peter 3.18 says that, Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
If we draw near to him, he will draw near to us because he has opened that pathway up for us through his blood. And when I talked about the temple being torn, when we went through Matthew, there were a couple people that came up afterwards and asked some really great, great questions. Like, what about when we feel like God's not there as believers? Right? We know we're a Christian. We know that we're pursuing him. And we feel like we are drawing near to God, but we don't feel that reciprocated from him. I think it's interesting here, the, the, the word choice that James makes. In, uh, in the Greek language, it's, it's way better than English. Because authors and speakers can be exceptionally specific about what they mean by choosing a specific word or putting it a specific way in the sentence. And we just can't do it with English. And the, the way he you know, puts this verb together is to express a progressive, continual action from God. Not from us, from God. And so when he says that he will draw near to us, what he means is that he will be drawing near to us. Right, it's a process. It's not a, a one-time thing. It's not like if we you know, go home and get in a closet and say, God, I'm drawing near to you, that we should expect the full magnitude of the presence of God in that moment. It's not, how, it's not a vending machine. We can't just push the right button or say the right words and expect to get exactly what we want. James talks about that in the first part of this passage. But he does promise that if we will be people who will put ourselves before him, that God is going to continue to be drawing near to us. We might not experience it initially in that moment. It might take months. It might take years. But God is not slow to keep his promise. He will keep that promise. He will draw near to us. We will experience his presence. But we have to be continually putting ourselves in his presence for him to do that with us. So we resist the devil. We draw near to God. And then he gives us two specific actions. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This cleansing and purifying, this is uh, language that the Jews that James is writing to would have totally understood. It's what they had to do when they wanted to come to the temple. They had to cleanse themselves, they had to purify themselves so that they could go in and worship God. He's saying, if you want to be in God's presence, if you want to be a recipient of this grace, you need to be someone who's continually cleansing yourself and purifying yourself so that you can be in his presence. And James here is blunt with these people. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. They are having these split affections, a split allegiance. In order to come into God's presence, they need to purify themselves by getting rid of that. Right? We don't draw near to God while we're also doing stuff that he doesn't want us to do. We don't draw near to him while we're also just consumed with uh, something that is contrary to his character. We need to have this single-minded pursuit of who he is and the grace that he gives us, and that is the kind of humble submission to him that he wants from us. And he calls him to respond. It's kind of drawing on the words of the prophets here. Be wretched and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And here we've got to remember, he's writing to Christians. I don't have the list in front of me, but throughout the letter, he calls them brothers a bunch of times. He calls them my dear brothers. He's writing to people who have trusted in Christ. And in this passage, he's calling them adulterers. He's calling them sinners. He's calling them double-minded. He's telling them that this should be their response to their sin. And this is something that I think that we as a church need to learn a lot from James about. Like, I love the fact that we are a super laid-back church because I'm a pretty laid-back guy. But I think that sometimes we can be too laid-back about sin and afraid to do what James does, and that's pointing at it and calling it by name. But that's what we're supposed to do. In order to confess sin, first of all, which the Word commands us to do, we've got to confess it, which means we say what the sin is. And in order for someone to forgive us when we've sinned against them, we have to acknowledge that sin to them. Right? If I sin against my wife by, I don't know, being harsh with my words, if I just come to her and be like, I'm sorry, I'm going back upstairs, what that's going to do in her is foster bitterness. going to put division and strife in our relationship because she's not being put in a place where she can forgive me because I'm not saying, look, I was wrong. I sinned against you when I was harsh. And then she can forgive me because she knows that I've confessed it. She knows that I've acknowledged it. And she can say, I forgive you for being harsh with me. But if we're not pointing at sin, if we're not acknowledging sin, we're neither confessing or forgiving each other. We need to be bold and direct and blunt with each other about sin. Because and there's far more online in the Christian ministry than hurt feelings and awkward situations. And our response to sin shouldn't just be verbal acknowledgement of it and you know, corporate recognition of it, but it should affect us emotionally. I've had a lot of conversations with people lately about how we are a very, uh, I don't know, stoic church, mannequin-like church, to where we don't show a lot of emotion. I'm saying we need to be crazy and run around, although that would probably be better than I am a robot who worships God. <laughs> and, and the same thing with sin. I mean, like, it's not, it's not just worship. It's our response to sin is, yeah, sin's bad. But God's good. See the difference? Sin's bad. But God's good. There's not a difference. But there should be for us. We should weep and mourn and be wretched when we sin. I'm not saying that we get down on ourselves, right? We should have joy in Christ. But Paul described himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
He was broken over his sin, and yet he had joy in Christ. And the reality is that the more we respond this way to our sin, the greater the grace we've been shown in the gospel will seem to us. Because as we grow in our awareness of our own sinfulness, and as we you know, sit under the weight of our sin, and we do weep and mourn and feel our wretchedness, we recognize the truth of what James says in verse 6. He gives more grace. We recognize that we fall even further short than we thought we did. And yet he still bridged that gap for us with his blood. So much of our response to this word is dependent upon having the kind of humility that James calls us to have. We can't respond this way to sin if we're not giving God what he deserves from us. If we're too concerned about our image and our name and our reputation and what we look like to others, we won't do what he calls us to do. But if we're concerned about his fame and his name and his glory and what he deserves from us, then we'll be willing to throw away all of that stuff that we care about. We talk a lot about the difference between like cognitive belief in the gospel or functional belief in the gospel, right? I know that it's true, but I'm not living it out. And uh, I just want to tell you, I want to throw that language out. I, I've used it a lot as a pastor, and I don't want to anymore because I don't think it's true. So that's me confessing that to you. And the reason why is because that distinction is a luxury that we only have because we're American. Because we live comfortable lives. Right? Dinesh in India, these guys on this video, they don't have the luxury of saying, well, I know that it's true, but I'm not really living it out today. And so I still believe the gospel, but I don't really believe the gospel. Right? James says faith is what works. If we have faith, it's going to be expressed outwardly. If we really have belief, it's going to be functional belief. There's no such thing as cognitive belief. It's a lie. And we need to be people who have the kind of faith that James described. That it pushes us to respond the way we should respond to sin. And that when we're not believing the gospel, we should just say, I'm not believing the gospel. Doesn't mean that we lose our salvation. Just means we're honest about where we're at. And so today, as we respond to this word, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to sing a song that just, it expresses what the end of the book of Revelation ends with, and that is a desire for Jesus to come. Because that's what videos like that and passages like that, this should push in us more than anything. Just that he would end it and come and set it all right. Make it all the way it should be. Make us the way we should be. And we're going to spend the rest of the time in worship. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, but we're going to do it differently. I would encourage you just to take time 
as we sing and do really whatever you want to do. If you want to stand up and sing, stand up and sing. If you want to sit in your chair and pray, sit in your chair and pray. If you want to grab someone and talk to them, grab someone and talk to them. And then whenever you're ready to come over here and celebrate what Jesus has done for us, do that. It doesn't have to be in the first song. It doesn't have to be in the second song. It doesn't have to be in any of the songs. If you want to, and I would encourage you to grab some people and take them with you when you go so that you can talk together about what Jesus has done for you. Let's celebrate the fact that he does give us more grace. And before we do that, I want to make one thing exceptionally clear. And that's that James is writing to Christians here. Right? He gives grace when we humble ourselves before the Lord. But if we're not a believer, if we're not someone who's placed all our trust and all our faith and all of our hope in Christ, then we are not and have not received that grace. His, his death for us and for our sin is only effective for us if we trust in him. We have that faith that is lived out. And so if you're here this morning and you say, that's not me, I haven't done that, I don't feel like I'm really a believer. That's the most important thing for you to do today. That's the most important way for you to respond to who God is and what he's done for us. So I would encourage you to talk to someone about, or about it with who, who you came with. Sorry, that was really unclear. Talk to someone who you came with about it. Or, uh, you know, some of the elders will be around after the service. You want to talk to us, that'd be great too. But don't just shrug it off, right? Eternity is not something we want to trifle with. God is a jealous God. He does own us. He can do whatever he wants with us. But thankfully, even in spite of our rebellion, he bought us twice. And he gives us grace when we respond to him in faith. So I'm going to pray. As I'm praying, the band is going to come up here, and they're going to sing. And again, respond however you want to. It doesn't matter to me. It might matter to the people around you, but they're less important than God, so who cares about them? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are more than worthy of our affection and allegiance. You deserve it from us. Simply because of who you are as the creator of everything, as our creator, you deserve all of our affection and allegiance. But even more than that, you've acted on our behalf. You sent your son into this world to save it, to save us. So you're even more deserving of our affection and our allegiance. And I pray that you would send your spirit to show us the ways in which we don't give it to you in our lives. And that you wouldn't let us shrug it off. You wouldn't let us distract ourselves with other things. You wouldn't let us 
think lightly of our sin, but that we would confess and repent. That we would begin more and more to give you what you deserve from us. And God, we thank you that even when we don't do that, your grace is more than abundant to cover all of our falling short, all of our imperfection, because Jesus was perfect on our behalf. Jesus, we know that you are restoring us and you are restoring this world and pray that you would come and do it. Even as we sing, God, that we would respond to your word with faith that acts upon your promises. It's in your name we pray. Amen.